Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I am Diana Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, Arden O'Connor. And today we have a guest named Elizabeth Kelly, who, unlike many of my colleagues and compatriots in law, has developed a practice of law which takes into consideration both criminal defense and mental illness. And what I love is that she talks about on her website that she has the honor of being a criminal defense attorney because what she believes is that people with mental disabilities do not belong in the criminal justice system and that jail and prison are not treatment. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today, Elizabeth. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So I'm going to ask the first question. We will try not to pummel you with too many questions and make it more Oh, go ahead. Pummel away. I'm an attorney. Awesome. I love it. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background. What got you into both law and in your specialty? Oh, well, thank you for asking. In many respects, law is the family business. My father was an attorney. My two uncles were attorneys. And I, I never thought I would be an attorney. However, I, I realized that I grew up thinking like a lawyer. So when I made the decision to go to law school, it was a very natural decision. My family understood it. They supported it. And uh, when I started practicing, I, I opened my own practice right away. I knew that I did not have the personality to join a big firm. Thank you very much. I didn't want to be carrying someone's briefcase for <laughs> a number of years. I didn't want to be cloistered in a library doing research and writing briefs. I wanted to be in the arena. And like any sole practitioner opening a business, I just took everything and anything that walked in the door. And I was at a benefit dinner one evening and a judge whom I respected came up to me and said, I hear you've opened your own practice. And I said, yes. And she said, you need to do criminal defense. And I recoiled in horror and I said, oh, no way. And she said, you need to do criminal defense. Trust me. And then she went on to say that she was in the arraignment room and I should come up to her chambers the following day. She would show me a criminal file. She would tell me how to work the average case. And then the next day she would assign me a client. So I went up to her chambers the following day. She assigned me a client and this was a very nice young woman 
who didn't want to litigate any pretrial issues. She just wanted to throw herself on the mercy of the court and plead guilty. And so we pled guilty. And I realized that theoretically, she could get up to 18 months in prison. And I thought, oh my gosh, this young woman should not go to prison. And with every breath in my body, I am going to prevent the judge from imposing a prison sentence. Well, I didn't know at that point in time that a first time offender for all intents and purposes gets probation. So at her sentencing, which I treated like great theater because I figured it would be the only criminal sentencing of my career, the judge gave her probation and I was overwhelmed. And I thought, my gosh, I saved a life and I could do this again. Not on a regular basis, mind you, but I could do this again. So when the next rotation in the arraignment room came up, I dropped off my business card. I another, got another client and this just kept on going. And like any business, my cards started circulating in my particular field. That meant that my card was posted above the payphone at the county jail. And <laughs> then I was assigned my first client who had what we then called mental retardation. Basically a very nice young man who was preyed upon by his so-called friends to be the lookout during a string of robberies. Mm. And I worked very closely with him and his family and his caseworker. And I really felt as if I had made a difference in this young man's life. And I have an older cousin who had mental retardation. I was close to him growing up. So I always had that degree of understanding so I started representing more people with intellectual disabilities, as we now call them. Then I had my first client with a co-occurring disorder, that is to say an intellectual disability and a mental illness. And I just started working the cases. And I read a lot of the literature. I work with their families. I work with their caseworkers. I work with their doctors. And I grew a reputation. And eventually other lawyers asked my opinion on various matters. Judges asked me my opinion. In fact, they asked me to help them write orders in some cases. And the practice grew and grew and grew. And uh, eventually it grew into the nationwide practice I enjoy today, uh, representing people with all different kinds of mental disabilities. And if I could clarify for your audience, I'm very deliberate when I use the term mental disabilities, because for me, that is a global term that encompasses not only mental illnesses like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, major depression, PTSD, but also intellectual and developmental disabilities like autism spectrum disorders and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It's a great story. Um, and I feel like in many ways, you know, you did what so many of us do, which is you sort of 
happen into an interest. I My background was in the foster care system. I just happened to start volunteering in a juvenile jail. And I thought, this is sort of interesting. And then I thought, maybe I'll sh- start a home for kids like this. And that's what I wound up doing when I graduated from college. You know, I have tons of questions about statistics and, and how do we think about people with mental health and suicide in the prison population. But I guess one just career question for listeners is, did you ever look back and say, boy, I wound up, you know, five years into your practicing, gosh, I've seen some cases or I never intended to get this specialty. Was there any regret or did you always feel like, gosh, I'm feeding or I'm dealing with such an important niche that this was the right choice for me? It was the right step for me temperamentally and emotionally and intellectually. But beyond that, I, I think in some respects it's a stroke of genius because in every field they now talk about carving out a market niche and distinguishing yourself, etc. And I never made a deliberate attempt to do so. My practice inherently is different, and it is indeed a market niche. So I feel blessed many, many times over. That's fantastic. So I have just switching the subject just a little bit. In your experience, when somebody, let's call them the IP or the identified patient, is in the criminal justice system, What can you expect from attorneys and judges and other caseworkers involved when there isn't somebody like you who's managing the helm of it? Wow, that's a loaded question because it depends on a host of different factors, including the jurisdiction, what they're charged with, and what what the diagnosis of, of the person is. Um, and then you have the whole overlayer of family dynamics. I'm approached a couple of different ways. First of all, the client, him or herself, can seek me out directly. But more often than not, it's the families who find me. All too often, I'm the second or the third or the fourth attorney on the case. And I don't mean to disparage other members of the bar, but these these cases are complicated and they're time consuming and they require creative solutions. And the clients are high maintenance and their families are high maintenance. And the clients and their families don't try to be difficult. But what you have to realize is that for many, the involvement with the criminal justice system is in some respects the last straw. They have been dealing with a lifetime of challenges, a lifetime of being misunderstood, a lifetime of being ostracized, and a lifetime of just not knowing what to do, but hoping that things get better. And quite quite often, early into my conversation with a relatively high-functioning family and or a high-functioning client, and make no mistake, you can have a mental illness, but you can still be high-functioning. In, in many respects, 
I, I say to them, look, you're thinking logically. The criminal justice system does not always function logically. So I can give you an answer based on my experience, based on my intuition, but a thousand different things can happen. Thankfully, as a society, thankfully, as a legal system, we are becoming more and more aware of the fact that people with mental disabilities should be diverted out of the system. And the solutions that we apply to so-called neurotypical defendants are completely inappropriate and sometimes completely destructive in the case of people with mental disabilities. So we're trying to divert them out of the system. We're trying to screen them immediately when, when they're, they're booked at the jail, if they are in fact booked. Um, we're developing mental health courts and veterans courts. We're trying to educate judges and defense attorneys and prosecutors and correctional institution staff. But at, at bottom, the criminal justice system is the worst place in the world for people with mental disability. And it's so tragic when a family member says to you that they feel that the only way they can access help is, is by calling the police. So I've, I've given you lots of different issues to chew on, but I haven't answered your question directly simply because there is no direct answer. And I would imagine that given that you practice on both the East Coast and West Coast, that there may be even just regional differences in the answer to that question. Oh, Is yeah. that true? It's not just East Coast, West Coast. It's, it's urban versus rural. Mm -hmm. um, it's misdemeanor versus felony. It's state versus federal. It's also the, the level of the offense. My practice has helped me to see virtually all 50 states. Um, I have a case now in Texas. I've had a couple cases in South Dakota. I'm continually seeing the, the ways in which our system can be effective and the ways in which our system can be improved. I guess one of the questions that jumps to my mind is, you know, I completely agree with you on the, you know, jail is not or prison is not the place that somebody with any type of behavioral health issue is going to receive the care they need, almost regardless of where they are. And there's better and worse situations, but I've never seen a place given sort of their overall public safety and crowd control goals that's going to be able to customize programming for somebody with mental illness or a serious substance use issue or what have you. I guess my question is, what is the alternative? And that, you know, I know you'll say this is a loaded question, but, you know, as you think about cases that you've had, you know, and, and maybe this is combined with the question that this podcast deals with a lot, if you have money, does that get you a better outcome? But are there better alternatives for people with or without money that you could propose, you know, given that we have to still hold people accountable for their actions? Okay, you've raised a host of different issues and I'm going to separate them into a couple broad categories. First of all, I want to talk about, I want to discuss some overall observations of the system. And secondly, I want to deal with the issue of families and economics and alternatives. 
First of all, the general observation. How a case can be disposed of largely depends upon the level of severity. I often flippantly say, not to families, but to colleagues, if you have a dead body, there's very, very little that can be done. In other words, if you're dealing with a low-level felony, if you're dealing with a first-time offender, if you're dealing with a case that doesn't have any publicity, chances are healthy you can divert it out of the system or you can negotiate a great plea. And by the way, I should, I should say that in a case of actual innocence, notwithstanding the mental disability, you may really, really want to litigate those issues. Mm. But that not being the case, if you have a serious felony, if you have a sexually oriented offense, if you have a repeat offender, if you have a case that's garnered a lot of publicity, the options are limited. Also, I should say that the traditional arguments that attorneys can make in regards to mental disabilities are not, are not congruent with the medical definitions. So for instance, in the legal system, you can say that someone is not competent to stand trial or is not competent to proceed. But the standard for competency within the legal system is very, very, very low. And in some instances, it's just never going to happen. If you have someone with an intellectual disability, that baseline is what that baseline is. That person is never going to understand the system any better. Mm -hmm. If you have someone with dementia, that person is never going to become more competent. In fact, that, comp that person is going to become increasingly less competent as the weeks and the months and the years go by. On the other hand, the standard for not guilty by reason of insanity is extremely high. And families often say, but he's mentally ill. Mm -hmm. He did not know what he was doing. Well, that may be true, but reaching the legal definition is another matter. When you have someone with a mental disability, more times than not, that disability comes down as a mitigating factor, something the attorney can use to negotiate a much, much more favorable plea bargain or that attorney can use in mitigation of sentence to either reduce a jail or prison term or even better to get the person probation. The second issue you raised, Arden, has to do with family and resources. First of all, whether you are talking about Anchorage, Alaska, or you are talking about Manhattan, there is a nationwide shortage of not just services and resources and providers, but also appropriate resources 
and services and providers. And many, many providers have a number of different exclusions. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you, you, if you have a substance abuse problem, in addition to your mental illness or your intellectual slash developmental disability, they require that you're stabilized. If, for instance, you have a conviction for arson, you're not going to be accepted in many residential programs. If you're a sex offender or um, charged with a sexually oriented offense, that categorically excludes you from a number of different programs. Um, that again is contingent upon the ability to negotiate a plea that maybe doesn't have those terms in it. But in terms of resources, I have found that families of all economic levels sometimes shy away from the label because of the stigma. So they don't want to admit that, some, that, that a loved one has a mental disability. In fact, something like substance abuse might be much, much easier to solve in their minds than, than a mental disability. Beyond that, successful families, successful parents, successful business people are used to negotiating the best deals possible, are used to entering a world where all contingencies and outcomes can be predicted, and dealing with a loved one who is ensnared by the criminal justice system is not like an ordinary business negotiation. It requires patience, it requires sensitivity, uh, hopefully a criminal defense lawyer who can be trusted, um, and it also requires understanding that the best intended solutions sometimes don't always work. Mm. So hopefully that family has the patience and the fortitude to go back and try again um, to find something that's more suitable. So I have another quick question. You know, I think... And you I, said quick. Yes, it'll be quick. Well, I, I'm never quick. <laughs> Mike's um, the answer. Yes. So what I see both in criminal cases where there are criminal charges pending and in cases where we see somebody, you know, the, the classic case we get is somebody who is dysregulated off their medications, low insight into their diagnosis, and they've done something that presents a danger to the to public safety. And, sure. you know, the what the court is asking for and families are, you know, we need them in a lockdown facility. I hear that term all the time. What has been your experience in cases like that? You know, can you, if you're willing to, if the family's willing to pay privately, can you access good treatment that guarantees the person can't get out? I can tell you my answer, but I'm curious on yours. And have you seen facilities that have that quote unquote lockdown forcible option for individuals be successful with somebody with behavioral health issues? Yikes, I can't give you a quick answer. Um, <laughs> you've got, Sometimes the threshold issue 
is getting the client, if, if the client is being held pending the case, you've got to bond the client out and you've got to get the client to the facility. And it's obviously a thousand times easier if the client voluntarily consents to go to a facility. Mm-hmm. And you've got to present the facility in such a way that the client agrees. If you tell someone in already in custody that they're going to another lockdown facility, that's not the most appealing mm-hmm. alternative in the world. Sure, they'll get better food and they can wear normal clothing and they will have normal access to a shower. Still, if they feel that they're being restrained and constrained on some level and they may or may not trust the attorney, their paranoia may be such that they may or may not trust their family, then that ideal facility doesn't seem terribly appealing. If, in fact, you can get them there voluntarily, you've got to convince the court that the client will get there without absconding. If, for instance, you've got to get the client on a plane to travel to another state or far across the state, you've got to chaperone the client, either with a trusted family member or a person from that facility or retired law enforcement that gives you a sense there there are options out there but you've got the threshold issue of getting them there and getting them to agree to go there that is the threshold issue almost universally in working with somebody with a behavioral health issue mm-hmm that's our business is yeah, really yeah. strategizing about how to get unwilling willing. And I think your points, you know, reinforce our experience because I said, you know, as I said, I can answer your question. I was curious on the law side or on the legal side. Yeah. And then if I could say, I mean, again, as I as I noted earlier, if you have a misdemeanor or a low level felony, getting the prosecutor and or the court to agree is one thing. But if you've got someone who is um, is being held without bond, sure. um, and the only reason why they would probably be held without out, without bond in a non-capital case is because of a repeated history of failures to appear, or because of such a threat of, of danger to the community, again, that's going to be a hard sell to the judge. But as I, as I often tell families, as I often tell other attorneys, you've got to make the argument. Mm-hmm. And you've got to know that yes, the judge may yell at you. The judge may ask hard questions. So when you walk into court, you have got to have your ducks in a row. You have got to be able to tell the court everything about the the so-called release plan, whether the 
client is going to go to a facility or he or she is going to be released back into the community with a variety of different, different support services that will make that person successful. You know, honestly, I think what you've confirmed, at least for me, is that the silver bullet answer that so many families are are desperate to find and our families, you know, I think part of the struggle is they feel like, well, we can afford whatever it will take both legally and clinically to get our son, our daughter, our child, um, our family member into a better situation. And so whether it's a medication they think is going to cure the problem, a specific center or some type of legal mandate that forces somebody to get help you at least what i'm hearing is it's just never that simple which is no it's never no it's never and it often requires a team of different experts and resources so often when when families come to me they want to know what my fee is and what it will take for me to do my job so i can tell them that and then I mention a lot of other things that they absolutely need. And the metaphor I use is you can't, you can't send me into battle unarmed. I need the following. Can you tell us about, you know, one case that was really influential in your career? Well, I already mentioned that first one where I represented that, that young man with, um, with the intellectual disability who was preyed upon by by his so-called friends. Um, that, that showed to me the power of effective advocacy mm-hmm. and in turn really, really being able to make a difference in the life of a person. And it also underscored for me a recognition I have virtually every day, and that is people with mental disabilities don't have the same sense of culpability that that your so-called garden variety defendant does. That is to say, his or her level of awareness, his or her level of responsibility for the act alleged is completely different. One case that that haunts me is a young man who came from a very, very prominent family. And he had a history of abuse. And the family thought they had it taken care of. And the young man was in a selective liberal arts institution he developed a major substance abuse problem. He was out on bond. He was, his, his childhood trauma started, um, he became very, very open about, about the fact that the trauma had resurfaced and he was self-medicating. And he was about to enter a PhD program upon graduation. He had all the promise in the world. I really, really liked him. We had great conversations. And then one morning his father contacted me and he, had, he committed suicide. 
and no one, no one saw it coming. And I think every criminal defense lawyer who has done this for a while can name at least one case where the client committed suicide. And the question we always ask is, why didn't I see it coming? Mm -hmm. And then what could I have done differently? Thank you for being that vulnerable about this case, because I know talking about a client or somebody, anybody you're close with um, taking their own life is painful, and it leaves everybody in the wake asking themselves what they could have done, should have done, might have done differently. So I have one last question, and I'm going to end it on a slightly different note. And that is, if you could not have been a lawyer, if you could not have pursued this clearly exciting and relevant and helpful mission, what would you do different? What would you do? Oh, when I grew up, I wanted to be the next Barbara Walters. Love it. But Me I took too. my first my first English literature class in college, and I fell head over heels in love. <laughs> and as an attorney, I understand that words can be tremendously powerful instruments. And in my practice, I use words to heal. I love that. Let's end on that note. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Kelly. Appreciate you being on the show. This has been an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Please go to your favorite platform, iTunes, Spotify, any of the ones you listen to us on, and like us. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.